If you've been looking for a comprehensive Bible school curriculum that explores redemptive realities in Jesus Christ grounded in the Word of God, look no further. The goal of this podcast is to spread the life-transforming Word of God throughout the world for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ in what Jesus has accomplished for us through His death, burial, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of God the Father. There's such an untapped potential for Christians to enter into their glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. Together we will discover what Jesus has done for us by providing such a great salvation and how to appropriate the promises of God in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Each podcast season will cover one of the books that I have compiled over the years. You can find a complete listing of my Christian education material on my website at www.wordinspire.com. You're welcome to download these ebooks for free in PDF format for your own personal or ministry use. So let's explore these biblical truths and principles together that will absolutely transform our lives. God bless. Welcome to the Word of Life study series, The Authority of the Believer. This will be our last episode for this season. Our Christian experience is grounded in the Word of God. So when it comes to the practical application of deliverance ministry, the Bible is our textbook. The scriptures are full of teaching and examples of what deliverance ministry should look like for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it the devil or just flesh? Before we discuss this segment, allow me to clarify the term flesh which comes from the King James Version of the Bible. The New International Version translates the Greek word as sinful nature. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 in the King James Version states, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 in the NIV, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. The Greek word sarx in this context refers to the sinful nature or selfishness that is resident in our physical bodies that we had inherited from Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. We were all born with this sinful nature, but we are not held accountable for yielding to it until the age of accountability. In Romans chapter 7 verse 5, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions roused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. That's talking about the age of accountability. When we had willfully chosen to yield to the sinful nature in our body, we died spiritually. This event is referred to as spiritual death. The I, in Romans chapter 7 verse 9, like Paul, refers to our spirit man receiving the same sinful nature that we were born with in our physical bodies, coming into our spirit. At that moment, we were separated from God and took on the nature of Satan. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 10, 
This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. You see, in this world, there are only two spiritual families, children of God or children of Satan, and we're in one or the other, based on what we do with Jesus. If we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are born again into God's family and become children of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. The good news is, when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we experienced a spiritual new birth, became a new creation. This meant that our old spiritual nature of sin had died, and a brand new spiritual nature took its place, recreated with the life and nature of God. This act is called receiving eternal life, the life and nature of God. As a result, we become children of God with God's nature in us, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Now in Romans 6.23, it states, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, But the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Remember that we are a threefold being. I am a spirit, I have a soul, and I live in a body. Well, the new birth made me a new creation in my spirit, but the old nature of my mind and body were not changed. God's job was to change who I was. My job now, by grace through faith in God's word, is to renew my mind, reprogram my mind like a computer with the Bible. This in turn brings my body under subjection and obedience to the word and the will of God. This is what the Bible calls sanctification which simply means to be separated unto God for a holy purpose. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Talking about the sinful nature in our physical bodies. Our spirit, remember, is saved instantaneously at the new birth, according to John chapter 3, verse 3, and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Our soul, made up of our mind, will, and emotions, is renewed over the course of the rest of our life on earth, referred to as progressive sanctification, James chapter 1, verse 21. And the physical body remains the same until the resurrection or at the rapture when we receive new glorified bodies in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. So when I talk about the flesh, I'm talking about the old, sinful human nature that is still left in our physical bodies, and every believer alive on the earth has to deal with the selfishness of our physical nature. This means that believers in Jesus Christ are very capable of committing sin and to live just like the world, even though they have been born again with the Holy Spirit indwelling them. This is where spiritual authority becomes so important, but it's not automatic, nor is it easy. However, through faithful diligence of meditating and acting upon the Word of God, we can, by the Holy Spirit's help, offer our physical bodies unto God as a living sacrifice. This may sound confusing, and it certainly is to the world when they see followers of Jesus acting just like them. The reality is, as Christians, we can yield to and walk after the lusts of our sinful human nature that is still in our physical bodies, called the flesh. Some things that folks attribute to the devil are really nothing more than works of the flesh. It is important to realize that everything that is wrong in life 
is not directly the work of an evil spirit. When the Bible talks about keeping the flesh under the dominion of our spirit, too many folks think that only refers to keeping sexual desires under control. Well, it's true we'll have to keep our body under subjection in that area. But right on the other hand, let's look at what else the Bible lists as acts or works of the flesh or the sinful nature in Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Holy Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now this is written in the book of Galatians to the church of Galatia, so this is talking to Christians. What many folks call works of the devil, the Bible calls works of the flesh. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul lists some of the traits of the old man, or the flesh, as well as some of the new traits of the new man in Christ. So when it comes to keeping all the evil tendencies or propensities of our flesh in check, it covers a wide range of things. In order for us to be successful Christians and effective in using the name of Jesus, we must learn how to bring our flesh under the dominion of the recreated human spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The key to holiness and spiritual maturity is to walk in love. Romans chapter 13 verse 8, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So back to Ephesians chapter 4. So who's supposed to put off the old sinful nature? Well, we are. You is the subject of verse 22. God is not going to put off the old man for us. We will have to put off the old man with its envy, bitterness, wrath, anger, stealing, and evil speaking. We are not dealing with evil spirits when we put off those evil tendencies. We are just dealing with our own flesh. Certainly at times the demonic can energize our flesh against us, but this is not always the case. All too often believers try to take the easy way out and call these evil desires of the flesh a demon or an evil spirit. You have heard of the phrase, well, you know, the devil made me do it. The devil had nothing to do with us eating that entire coconut cream pie. We saw and we devoured. End of story. 
Now we have to eat a whole package of Rolaids to deal with that demon of indigestion. Just kidding. Seriously, though, we are all guilty of doing this because we generally don't want to take responsibility for our actions. Blaming disobedience on the devil is much easier. However, the Bible calls these evil desires the flesh or the sinful nature of our body. The believer has something to do about it. By grace through faith, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The only way we can put on the new man is to renew our minds with the word of God. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man is part of our spiritual act of worship, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We have to keep those evil desires and attitudes under the dominion of our spirit, the man on the inside, and let the new creature in Christ dominate. As we put on Christ, we'll be able to walk in the spirit of God and not in the flesh. Otherwise, we become easy prey for Satan. If we didn't have our flesh, the carnal earthly nature to deal with, we wouldn't be human. That does not make it all right. But as long as we are in this body of ours, we will have a sinful nature to deal with. But we do it by grace through faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly or carnal, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus. Are you not mere men? For example, if someone hits you, and your flesh isn't in subjection to your spirit, it will want to retaliate and hit back. That's the way of carnal nature acts apart from God. If someone hurts us, our flesh wants to get even and retaliate and hold bitterness and resentment against that person. That's the old get-even nature of the flesh. It's not a devil or demonic activity. It's just the sinful nature of human selfishness that's left unchecked. However, if a Christian continually yields in a certain area of the flesh, a stronghold can build and invite demonic oppression in that area that holds a believer in bondage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. According to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, states, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Putting off of the old man and putting on the new man is a choice. We can't say, well, that's just the Irish in me. No, that's just the flesh on display. If we let the flesh dominate us, we can get out of control and do and see things we'll regret later. Remember, it's our choice. The secret is not just saying no to our body at the moment of truth, but to get full of the word and the spirit ahead of time when things are calm. In this way, we have built ourselves up spiritually in advance, so it's much easier to keep the body under control in the heat of the moment. If we haven't built up a reservoir of God's grace and made deposits in our lives through our devotional times in the Word of God and prayer, when it comes to making a withdrawal to say no to temptation, our faith will bounce like a hot check. The result is our spirit becomes overdrawn due to a depleted, weak, and malnourished spirit man. When we feed our bodies three hot meals a day, sometimes more, and our spirit man just one cold snack a week on Sundays, and we wonder why it's hard to keep our body in check. Go figure. 
Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Some folks think that we can get so sanctified here on earth that we won't ever have any more problems with the flesh or Satan. But the only way we won't have problems with them is to pass on and leave this world. The next time we think that this Christian life is getting too hard, consider the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled, and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. I find the above passage amazing coming from a man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament by the Holy Spirit. If Paul still had to keep his body under, what about us? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The key is to never give up, never surrender, and never stop pressing for the goal of being more like Jesus every day of our lives. We are never a failure until we give up. Consider what Jesus told Peter about forgiveness. The point Jesus was making is that we don't keep track of how many times we forgive others. Doesn't God practice what he preaches concerning how many times he will forgive us when we miss it? True, we're not to abuse God's grace and use it as a license for immorality according to Jude verse 4. However, when we are faithless, he remains faithful according to 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13. Matthew chapter 18 verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Philippians chapter 3 verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Much of the time, believers are wrong in their thinking. More times than not, it's not the devil who is giving them a hard time, but rather their own flesh. I'm convinced that Christians will have more trouble with their flesh than they will with the devil. 
Why, you may ask, because our flesh never leaves us. It's with us 24-7 wherever we go in this life. The sinful human nature in our physical body tags along, and we need to keep it under subjection. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable adultery. If an evil spirit is involved trying to work through our flesh, we have authority over it. The devil and evil spirits have no dominion over us, as long as we walk in line with the word and keep doing what we're supposed to do with our flesh. Keep standing against Satan and his schemes, because he has to flee, according to James chapter 4, verse 7. But if it's the flesh we are dealing with, we won't be able to cast it out like we would an evil spirit. No, we have to crucify or put to death the misdeeds of the body. Everyone from the pastor to the new believer has to do something about their own physical body through faith in God's word. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Holy Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with his practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. I can't stress enough that it is our responsibility and not God's. Certainly, the Holy Spirit is our helper in the areas of sanctification. However, we take the initiative, make the choices, and must be willing to suffer when we say no to the lusts of our flesh that are contrary to God's word. The reality is that it hurts to deny the flesh. And that's why we don't always take the way of escape that God provides for us. To walk in love towards unlovely people is not easy. Never is. But it's the sure way to victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to men. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of the wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. We are not going to solve all our problems by just trying to deal with the devil all the time. Yes, there are times to deal with the devil, but much of the time it's our own flesh causing the problems. Consider Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Jesus was speaking figuratively here about plucking out our eye or cutting off our hand. He was saying that sometimes it will hurt us to deal with our fleshly lusts and appetites just as much as it would be to cut off one of those bodily members. So the devil will try to gain access to us any way he can, and he will use the cravings of our own flesh to do it if we allow him to. The good news is we don't have to allow him to. When the devil tries to use our flesh to gain access to us, 
It does not mean we are demon-possessed. The devil will always work through the flesh because our body isn't redeemed yet, and our five physical senses contact this world where Satan is the small g god of this world. However, if we don't furnish the devil anything to work with as far as sin is concerned, if we don't give him any place in us, he won't have access to us. There is a danger, though, for Christians who consistently practice sin and give way to the lust of the flesh. This repeated behavior will eventually open the door to an evil spirit. The devil will accommodate believers and help them fulfill the lusts of their own bodies. And eventually, an evil spirit can get a hold of a believer who continually indulges in the lust of their carnal, sensual nature. That is one way Satan gains access, even to believers. The devil will always help, encourage, and aid people to sin and wrongdoing, saved and unsaved alike. But we must always put the responsibility where it belongs, on the individual who has the free will to choose. The real battleground is in our minds. This is where we must be alert and ever watchful at all times. The root of all human behavior originates in thoughts that we have dwelt on. Consider Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 in the New King James Version. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The Bible has much to say about our minds, from renewing it with God's word in Romans 12 verse 2, to what kinds of things to think on, as in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. We are told to set our minds on things above, in Colossians 3 verse 1, and to fix our thoughts on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. The battle for obedience and devotion to God is won or lost on the battlefields of our minds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It is really crucial for us to learn how to close the door to Satan in our thought life. We fail in this area and think on wrong things or watch things on TV that fill our minds with junk that we just have to cast down later. We will always have problems with the devil. Our mind has become an open door. We can't allow fear, worry, or anxiety to reside in our thought life. For example, the wrong way folks have treated us will keep us up at night in an attempt to fester into bitterness and unforgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Satan will always try to enter into a person, saved and unsaved alike, through the person's thoughts, if the person will yield and listen to him. This is what happened unwittingly to Peter when he tried to talk Jesus out from going to Jerusalem to suffer and die for us. He was unconsciously yielding to the devil through the power of suggestion. Mark chapter 8 verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That does not mean Peter was possessed with Satan, but rather that he had yielded to his deceptive powers of suggestion momentarily. 
2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We have all done what Peter has done at one time or another in our lives. The key is to get so full of the word that we recognize Satan's deceptive line of thinking that tries to take root in our minds. Then we can cast down those vain imaginations and take captive every thought that is contrary to the word of God. You know, ungodly thoughts are floating around in this world as pervasive as radio stations are broadcasting their programs. The question is, are we deliberately tuning out of Satan's broadcasts and tuning into the Lord's? We have a choice on what we think on, and that choice will set in motion how we live our lives in the future. I can't stress this point enough, my friend. We may not be able to stop who comes and knocks on our front door, but we can choose who we let in our home. I have caller ID on my phone. I also have a remote control for my TV. These devices empower me as to what I subject myself to, which has a direct impact on my life. Thoughts will pop up in our mind out of nowhere that are just nasty. And then the devil will come along and say, why, you're not even saved. You wouldn't even think that. If that were true, what about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where it says that who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. It's not a sin to have evil thoughts pass through our minds. It's a sin if we act on them or meditate on them. Just like it's not a sin to be tempted because Jesus was tempted and never sinned by obeying it. At times, even the most holy of saints find thoughts in his or her mind that the heart absolutely resents. Read Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Thoughts may come and thoughts may persist, but thoughts that are not put into action die unborn. I'm going to say that again. Thoughts may come and thoughts may persist, but thoughts that are not put into action die unborn. You can't stop thoughts from coming into your mind, but you can choose what you do with them. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though we used to be slaves to sin, we wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which we were entrusted. We've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were a slave to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become a slave to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. When people sin, they have to repent and completely turn from wrongdoing before we can help them. Anyone can be set free from an evil spirit if he or she is willing. But what that person does after they are delivered of evil spirits is of utmost importance. Luke chapter 11 verse 24. Are they going to feed their minds on the word of God? Are they going to get filled with the Holy Spirit and give the devil no more access to them? If a person is delivered from an evil spirit and isn't taught the word of God, Evil spirits can enter back into their lives and and they can end up worse off. Get them in the word so that they will know how to resist the devil's attacks. Here are a few steps to keep our deliverance. Get rid of the things or relationships that open the door to the devil in the first place. Next, avoid the very appearance of those things for the rest of your life. Read the word of God and pray in tongues every day. 
stay full of the things of God. Also, faithfully attend a Bible-believing church. Next, surround yourself with mature believers who will hold you accountable. And also, become actively involved in doing Christian ministry. Finally, learn to forgive yourself and rejoice in the mercy and grace of God. Condemnation will not give you any power or virtue to overcome. When it comes to deliverance ministry, in most cases, it's nothing but the flesh that is involved. So there's nothing to cast out. Just teach them about sanctification from the word. In other cases, when people are being driven to do wrong, evil spirits are involved. And in other cases, it can even be a combination of the two, the flesh and the devil working together. To know what category a person falls under requires wisdom in God's word and revelation from the Holy Spirit. Some things are more obvious. For example, you can understand how a a man might get physically involved with a woman because a man has a natural desire for a woman. Of course, all sexual relations outside of marriage are expressly forbidden by Scripture. You can just read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. But when it comes to a grown man molesting little children or other types of perversion, that's unnatural. That's beyond just work of the flesh. An evil spirit is involved in that kind of unnatural sexual desire, and it will have to be dealt with for deliverance to be complete. Romans chapter 1 verse 26 talks about this kind of thing. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their own women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul is writing to spirit-filled Christians in this passage. However, do you notice that in the NIV translation of the Bible capitalizes S in the word spirit, making the passage refer to the Holy Spirit? But Paul isn't talking about the Holy Spirit in this verse. He's talking about the human spirit. As W.E. Vines points out in his expository dictionary of New Testament words, there's only one word translated spirit in the Greek, and that's pneuma. Therefore, we have to determine by the context of the passage whether pneuma is referring to the human spirit or to the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 says that the sinful nature desires what is contrary and in conflict or fights against the recreated human spirit. Another translation says the flesh fights against the spirit. So Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 states, So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so you don't do what you want. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul. People are talking a lot about spiritual warfare in Christian circles today, but the biggest warfare in the Christian walk is between the flesh and their spirit. Yes, we have to deal with spiritual forces of darkness, all right, but if we get this war between our flesh and our spirit settled, we won't have to contend with Satan very much, because we won't be leaving an open door to the enemy. Let's now look at the difference between oppression, obsession, and possession. The primary way Satan tries to gain access to people is through their mind and body. The degree to which a person yields to Satan in these areas determines how much Satan is able to influence them. Since mankind is a spirit being, 
he has a soul and lives in a body. Demons can affect and influence people in their bodies and their souls, their mind, will, and emotions, yet not be present in their spirit. To really understand how demons affect people, it's also important to understand the difference between oppression, obsession, and possession. Many people use these terms interchangeably when they're actually referring to three separate degrees of demonic influence. Let's first look at oppression. Evil spirits can exert a certain amount of influence as they seek to oppress mankind. Evil spirits can oppress anyone, even Christians, if they allow it, from within and without their body or soul. Of course, evil spirits have their widest range of influence if they can embody a human because they can express themselves in the natural realm. If evil spirits can't embody people, they will try to exert influence around about people in the spiritual realm. Many times, believers, even spiritual believers, can be oppressed by demons from the outside. Satan tries to oppress us by putting all kinds of pressure on us until we are keenly aware of that pressure. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we see Jesus saying, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Luke chapter 13, verse 10, we see an example of physical oppression. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. A woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Then Jesus said, Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? In Acts chapter 10 verse 38 in the Amplified, How God anointed and consecrated Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with strength and ability and power. How he went about doing good and in particular curing all who were harassed and oppressed by the power of the devil for God was with him. We need to realize that there are degrees of oppression. In other words, a person can be more oppressed or less oppressed. I'm convinced that all of us have experienced oppression in our lives at one time or another. For example, sometimes oppression can be manifested as a spirit of fear coming against us. Other times it could be a bad mood or a dark cloud hanging over our heads. That can be the direct result of satanic oppression. People can be more oppressed at certain times than they are at others. But as we rebuke that oppression in the name of Jesus, stand against it and resist it, the devil will have to flee from us. Here are a few passages of scriptures that we should meditate on. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, James chapter 4, verse 7, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. Believers don't need to live under the oppression of the enemy. It is never God's will for his children to be oppressed by the devil. Sometimes when oppression leaves a person, it feels like a weight has lifted off his or her shoulders. It is important to note that Christians cannot be demon-possessed taken over totally in their spirit, soul, and body, simply because the Holy Spirit already possesses our spirit. However, an evil spirit can oppress our soul and our body, but only if we allow it. The good news is if we can open the door, then we can close the door right back on the enemy. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 in the Amplified, 
the Father has delivered us to himself out of the control and dominion of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Here's a really important point to make. When ministering in public, if we just cast an evil spirit out of a believer's body or mind without explaining it to the congregation, it would cause more damage than good because folks will begin to think, well, that person is saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and a member of this church. If he has a devil in him, maybe I have a devil in me. And if they start thinking and talking like that, guess what? They can unknowingly open the door to the devil and an evil spirit will accommodate them. That's why people need to exercise wisdom when ministering in public. So before ministering to the person, we should explain to the congregation, Satan, not God, is the author of sickness and disease. Sometimes there can be a literal presence of a demon in a person's body that enforces the sickness and disease. When that is the case, the evil spirit must be dealt with by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. In this person's case, I'm going to cast the evil spirit out of his body. It's not in his soul or his spirit. Here's a good illustration. If you lived in an old house that had termites in it, that doesn't mean you have termites in you. Well, your body is just the house you live in. Your body is not the real you. The real you is the spirit man on the inside. And if you're born again, the spirit man can't have a devil in him. However, your body, the house of your spirit, can have an evil spirit afflicting it. In dealing with folks suffering from mental oppression, remember we deal with the spirit and not the person. For example, we would pray, You foul spirit that has oppressed and bound this man, I command you to loose him and let him go in the name of Jesus. Take your hands off his mind, now in Jesus' name. Now, not every case of physical or mental oppression is caused by a literal presence of a demon. That's really important to make that point. We'll have to rely on the Holy Spirit to know when the literal presence of a demon is causing the affliction. In our own human knowledge or wisdom, we won't know whether it is an evil spirit that's present. The Bible tells us to eagerly desire spiritual gifts or the manifestation of the Holy Spirit according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, like a word of knowledge or discerning of spirits. Revelation gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 are really helpful in this matter. Everything within the realm of knowledge, facts, events, purpose, motive, origin, destiny, human divine or satanic, natural or supernatural, past, present, or future, comes within the focal range of the word of wisdom, the greatest gift, the word of knowledge, the second greatest gift, and the gift of discerning of spirits, the third greatest of the revelation gifts. They include in their comprehensive scope all that God knows. There is nothing God knows that may not be made known to mankind as the Spirit wills through the operation of one of or more of these three revelation gifts. The word of wisdom gives us a revelation of the mind and purpose of God. Therefore, it is ranked first among the revelation gifts. The word of wisdom always deals with the future. The word of knowledge gives us revelation of things present or past. The discerning of spirits gives us insight into the spirit world. It actually has a more limited range than the other revelation gifts, because its revelation is limited to a single class of objects, spirits. Revelations that the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge bring are broader and apply to people, places, and things, whereas the discerning of spirits gives supernatural insight only in the realm of spirits. 
it is important to realize that the gift of discerning of spirits is not just the discerning of devils or evil spirits only. It's a supernatural insight into the realm of spirits, both good and bad. Now, this is really important to point out. Even if these revelation gifts are not manifestation as the Spirit wills, we can always speak the name of Jesus and exercise authority over the works of the enemy, either directly or indirectly, and bring deliverance in the name of Jesus. So we just looked at oppression. Now the next stage from oppression comes obsession. If a Christian opens the door to the devil, the devil will come in and eventually possess his mind or soul if given access to them over a period of time. However, in the case of a Christian, as we've been saying, a demon cannot inhabit his or her spirit unless the believer meets the conditions stated in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 46, chapter 10 verse 26. For the majority of Christians, they will never reach the level of spiritual maturity that would put them in a position to commit the sin unto death or the unpardonable sin. Please note, the sin unto death can only be committed by a mature Christian by willfully denying Christ from their heart with deliberate forethought. You can read this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. So Christians don't need to be preoccupied with wondering whether or not they are possessed by the devil in their spirit. If they are concerned that they might be, it's a sure sign they aren't. However, Christians can open a door to the devil in other areas of their lives. We need to be on guard that we never allow our minds to become fixated or obsessed on things contrary to God's word like fear or worry, for instance. First, a thought starts out as a vain imagination in the mind. If one continues to give attention to it and think on it, in time it will grow into an obsession and become a stronghold for the enemy. Unfortunately, even for Christians, this can lead to insanity. When ministering to people who have lost their minds, it requires special attention. Here's something else we need to understand. The prayer of faith won't work in every situation. This is an instance where the prayer of faith wouldn't work because an insane person would not be in a position mentally to agree with you and to use his or her own faith. Now, don't misunderstand me. The prayer of faith will work in those situations where it's supposed to work. But when another person's will is involved, we won't always be able to pray the prayer of faith on their behalf unless that person is in agreement with us according to Matthew chapter 18 verse 19. So if the person we are dealing with is insane, their deliverance couldn't come about through the operation of his or her faith. Some people have tried to make the prayer of faith work in every situation and in every circumstance. In some cases, it's sort of like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It wouldn't work. In other words, there are different kinds of prayer, and they each have their own rules for their successful operation. So what is the correct stance to take in dealing with the mentally insane? Begin to pray in tongues and seek God for guidance and direction. We would need the leading of the Holy Spirit and rely on Him to know how to deal with cases like this. I like what Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. If we try to go ahead in our own strength and power, nothing happens. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. 
The secret to successful deliverance ministry is to rely on the Word of God, His power and might, and His Spirit in order to be successful in life. If we allow the Greater One to rise up, big in us, and give illumination to our minds and direction to our spirits, we will get the victory every time. Remember, the Holy Spirit will always lead us in line with the holy written Word of God. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Casting out a demon in a situation like this, ministering to the insane, has to be done under the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus during his earthly ministry, like us, was dependent upon the manifestation of the Holy Spirit to perform miracles and healings. Jesus had the Spirit without limit, according to John chapter 3, verse 34, but he still needed the Holy Spirit to manifest according to the nine manifestations of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 states, One day, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of the Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. When the manifestation of special faith or the gift of faith in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 is in operation, the Holy Spirit gives us faith to do whatever he says to do and it will always work. When it comes to dealing with devils in other people's lives, such as in the case of insanity, they are unable to give their consent or permission. We must be led by the Spirit in what to do. If the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us to do something, then we're just doing it on our own, and we'll fall flat on our face. However, if people ask us for help and give their permission, then we can exercise authority over the devil in their lives in the name of Jesus, according to Mark chapter 16, verse 17. I like what Luke chapter eleven twenty says. It conjures up images of God flicking demons out of folks' lives, as we would a little ant that has crawled up on our arm. Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus said, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Remember, once a person is delivered, we are obligated to follow up with them and teach them how to stand against the devil for themselves. Of course, in dealing with the devil in our own life, we don't need someone else to rebuke the devil for us. If we are submitted to God, we have authority over the devil to resist him, stand against him, rebuke him, and he will flee from us. Luke chapter 9 verse 1, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 13, James chapter 4 verse 7. Sometimes when the evil spirit comes out of a person, it will do so violently. Do not be concerned. It would just be the last gasp of the evil spirit as it leaves the person. In Mark chapter 9 verse 25, we see an example of this. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. If the evil spirit does not appear to leave immediately, don't let it trouble you. When the command of faith is spoken by the unction and power of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't necessarily bring instant results, but it will always bring results. In review, obsession begins with a thought. 
If not dealt with, the thought festers into an imagination. Over time, with more and more attention given to it by the individual, these imaginations turn into an obsession. When people allow the devil to gain more and more access to their thinking and keep yielding to it, an evil spirit will finally be able to possess their soul or their mind and will and emotions. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now we're going to look at demonic possession. As we have seen, a person can be obsessed or oppressed in their soul, that is in their mind or emotional realm. Even if they are a Christian, and even a Christian can be oppressed by a demon or an evil spirit in his or her body from within or without, but that is not the same as demon possession. Remember, total possession implies being given over spirit, soul, and body to an evil spirit, because to possess something means to own it. Therefore, it's erroneous and unscriptural to say a Christian can be possessed by an evil spirit. Certainly, no Christian can have a devil in their spirit, or you couldn't call the person a Christian anymore. We need to be more careful with our terminology and define what we really mean by certain expressions. Also, we must realize that there is a vast difference between being oppressed, influenced by, yielded to demons, or obsessed by them, and in being fully possessed by demons. The Greek word that is translated possessed also carries with it the sense of being under the power or the influence of a demon. It seems the biblical use of the word demonized has a broad meaning, and it includes being afflicted or even influenced by demons. In its widest range, to be demonized includes not only possession, but also oppression and obsession, and can actually include any activity of the devil which influences mankind, to be affected by the works of the devil. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Our thinking is not clear along this line many times because our terms and their meanings aren't clear. For example, if someone asks, can a Christian be possessed by a devil? The question the person may be trying to ask is, can a Christian be demonized? In other words, can a Christian be oppressed or obsessed or influenced by or yielded to evil spirits? Expressed that way, the answer is yes. A Christian can be demonized by evil spirits. But no, a Christian cannot be fully possessed, spirit, soul, and body, by evil spirits. Certainly, the devil could eventually possess any part of a person who continually yields to him and gives him more and more access over time. Sometimes, even within full possession in unbelievers, there can be degrees of possession. In other words, one can be more fully or less fully controlled by the devil. A person is partially possessed if only his mind or soul is possessed by an evil spirit. And even in partial possession of the mind or soul, there are degrees of possession. One can be more or less possessed and controlled by the devil. In other words, one can be more or less in control of his or her own faculties. Let's now look at a biblical account of full or total demon possession. The madman of Gadara was possessed by a demon, spirit, soul, and body. So in Mark chapter 5 verse 1, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. 
and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and cried out with a loud voice, and said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may go enter into them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about two thousand of them. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion, sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might go with them. However, Jesus did not permit him but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Now from this account, there are many observations that we can make. First of all, the man was not a believer and had not been born again. He was still living under the old covenant since Jesus had not yet been raised from the dead. However, he evidently wanted to be free. There is a vast difference between a person who is struggling to be free from satanic power and one who willingly yields himself to Satan again and again and does not want to be free from Satan's dominion. So let's break this down. First, Jesus met the madman with compassion in Mark chapter 5 verse 19. Next, Jesus commanded and the man was set free in Mark chapter 5 verse 13 and also in the account in Luke chapter 8 verse 32. Immediately, the man's appearance had changed. We see that in Mark chapter 5, verse 15. Then the man wanted to go with Jesus, but instead the Lord told him to testify, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 38. The next observation is considering folks who are demonized in cases of insanity. Apparently, cases of insanity are still the same in nature and cause as they were in the days of Jesus. In Jesus' day, insanity was a matter of demon activity, either directly or indirectly. In this man's particular case, the literal presence of an evil spirit was the direct cause of this man's insanity. Next, did you notice the term unclean spirit? In Mark chapter 5, verse 2, verse 8, and verse 13, the reference to unclean spirits was made. Certainly, in a general sense, all evil spirits are unclean, indicating the nature of an evil spirit as a fallen eternal spirit being. That is where the NIV version uses the general term of evil spirits. However, specifically speaking, other translations use the term unclean spirit, referring to its type or kind, as in the case of the madman of Gadara. Demons are eternal evil personalities, 
And when evil spirits do embody a person, they make that person what they are. In other words, a person will take on the character and personality of the type or kind of evil spirit that is influencing them. For instance, we know that the word unclean was not the name of the demon, because in Mark chapter 5 verse 9, we find its name was legion. It's obvious that this man took on the characteristics of the unclean spirit. The unclean spirit caused the man to tear off his clothes, to wander around naked, and to cut himself with stones, according to Mark chapter 5 verse 5 and Luke chapter 8 verse 27. It's likely this evil spirit was manifested through this man in connection with the sexual appetites of man. This fellow was probably a masochist, deriving sexual pleasure from suffering physical pain. We see that this unclean spirit made the madman of Gadara what it was. Because as soon as that man was delivered and restored to his right mind, did you notice he put on some clothes? Note also that as a result of his deliverance, he sat at the feet of Jesus and began to learn from him. Here's another observation. A matter of preference. Another key to notice in Mark chapter 5 is that when the evil spirits could no longer embody or possess this man, as a second choice, they sought to embody animals. These demons asked Jesus for permission to go into the swine in Mark chapter 5 verse 12. Interesting note that at the time Jesus was living under the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Law, the dietary laws forbid the eating of pigs. So one could say that Jesus killed two birds with one stone, delivered the man of the demons, and got rid of the pigs. This principle can also explain why sometimes animals do things beyond just rabies or some other circumstance in attacking people viciously. This could be prompted by demons. But again, we have authority over demons and we can use the name of Jesus to stop them from operating through animals. Now, another observation we see here is the possession by one demon. Another important ailment in this passage is found in Mark chapter 5, verse 2. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. The word spirit is in singular. That's the first evidence we have that only one spirit does the actual possessing. Soon after his encounter with this man, Jesus told the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. In Mark chapter 5 verse 8, But the unclean spirit does not come out of the man, so then Jesus asked him, What is your name? The unclean spirit answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. That indicated that there was only one spirit that did the possessing, and it was an unclean spirit named Legion. In this case, Legion refers not only to the name of the unclean spirit, but also to its number. This one evil spirit that was an unclean spirit was named Legion, and by its name, we know that it brought in with it many other evil spirits to inhabit the man. In other words, the whole legion didn't possess the man, although the legion of devils were in the man too. Only one devil did the possessing, and he brought with him a legion of other devils. This is quite typical. It's not possible for an unbeliever to be possessed by a legion of demons. Matthew chapter 12 gives us more insight about evil spirits and their operation. In Matthew chapter 12 verse 43, it states, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Now the sixth observation concerning demons as evil entities Although we don't know the exact origin of evil spirits, 
we do know that they are eternal fallen beings or evil eternal personalities. As personalities, demons can talk, according to verse 44. As in the case of the madman of Gadara, when a person is fully possessed, the demon can speak through the person. By personalities, demons can think and they have the capacity to make decisions, which gives them intelligence. Notice in verse 44, the demon said, I will return to my house. So as personalities, demons can communicate with other evil spirits. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself in verse 45. Apparently, there are varying degrees of wickedness according to that verse. The fact that the demon came back with other spirits more wicked than itself denotes planning and a certain amount of intelligence in the ranks of evil spirits, which coincides with Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, which speaks of Satan's hierarchy, rank, and division in the kingdom of darkness, with the first rank being principalities all the way up to the top of the food chain, wicked spirits. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 in the New King James Version, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, and spiritual hosts are wicked spirits in the earth's atmosphere. Now, the seventh observation we have here is coming back again. In verse 44, the evil spirit says, I will return to my house from which I came, which shows that the devil is persistent in his attacks and does not let up on his maneuvers and operations against us. The devil will always try to return after he is cast out of that person. He will endeavor to go right back in the house he had left. And he will always keep on in his attempts to entice the person to do wrong or to bring sickness and disease back on them. You know, we can really see this principle at work in the case of an unsaved person. If they get saved, the devil will always try to get back into that person's life. Satan tries to get baby Christians to do wrong just as they had done before they were saved. Many times trying to influence them to return to their former lifestyle. That's why new believers must be discipled, rooted, and grounded in the Word of God, so they can stand against the attacks of the enemy. We can also see the principle of Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, at work in the life of a person who has been delivered from sickness and disease. The Bible calls sickness and disease satanic oppression in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, and in Luke chapter 13, verse 16, where a spirit of infirmity attached itself to this woman. Unfortunately, many times the devil tries to put the same sickness or disease right back on someone who has been healed. Of course, not every case of sickness and disease is caused by the direct presence of an evil spirit, but sometimes sickness and disease is the result of the presence of an evil spirit that is enforcing the infliction. That is why it is not enough just to cast the evil spirit out of a person who is afflicted with sickness or disease. The person must be taught the word so they can stand against the devil for themselves, because Satan will always try to return with the same sickness, disease, or condition, or sin. Teach them not only how to get free, but also how to stay free. When we cast evil spirits out of folks, minds, or bodies, if we fail to get the word in them, we can do them a huge injustice, because the Bible says that they can end up seven times worse than they were before. We need to teach them the word concerning the believer's authority in Jesus a place of victory and triumph far above principalities and powers. As Christians, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ, and therefore we look down on Satan and his hosts from a place of triumph, not fear or defeat. 
Please read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 5 through 6. So if we're going to deal biblically with the kingdom of darkness, we need to always be mindful of that triumphant position as joint heirs with Christ. It is a position of authority in Jesus over the devil and all his works and operations against us. Spiritual warfare. Are we wrestling or resting? Spiritual warfare is a subject some Christians are overemphasizing today in a way that is not in line with the Word of God. Actually, some of what is being taught in the body of Christ in this area of spiritual warfare and demonology is scripturally in error. That's why it would benefit us to study the Word and see how to deal scripturally with Satan and his strategies. Many believers become fearful if we talk about the devil or demons and evil spirits and their activities. Many people seem to think it would be better not to even mention the devil or evil spirits. But if we don't teach believers scripturally from the word of God how to deal with the devil, the enemy will just run rampant and take inroads in our lives because we don't know how to exercise our spiritual scriptural authority. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 in the Amplified, to keep Satan from getting the advantage over us for we are not ignorant of his wiles and intentions. We need to know our enemy. The Bible says we are not to be ignorant of Satan's devices and schemes. Satan has not changed the least bit over the millennia. The devil is the same old devil he has always been, and he uses the same old tactics he has always used, just in a different wrapper to keep up with the times. That is why the Bible is relevant for us today in this area of dealing with the kingdom of darkness. One of Satan's devices is to get people off into the extreme, even in the area of spiritual warfare. So they become unfruitful in the kingdom of God. It seems on any Bible subject, it's a challenge for the body of Christ to stay in the middle of the road. Many believers either get in the ditch on one side of the road or on the other side. In either ditch, they become ineffective because extremes and excesses never produce any fruit to the glory of God. This wrong thinking and wrong believing in this area has actually opened the door to the devil. Wrong thinking and wrong believing always leads to wrong actions. Now, there is a legitimate scriptural warfare. Of course, scriptural warfare is a biblical subject and one that we should be interested in because every one of us must take our stand in spiritual warfare at one time or another in our Christian life. After all, there is truth to the fact that there is an adversary arrayed against us and that we are in the army of the Lord. However, people often take these truths and run off with them into extremes and error. Their thinking seems to be, well, An army fights the enemy to defeat him, right? So let's fight the devil so we can defeat him. The problem with that line of thinking is that Jesus has already met the devil in spiritual combat and soundly defeated him once for all 2,000 years ago. So what is our posture to be in regards to the devil today? Simple. We are to enforce his defeat in Jesus' name. That is why the King James Version of Luke chapter 19 verse 13 says, Occupy till I come. We're to take our stand on the word against the defeated foe. Therefore, we're in the army of the Lord, all right, but it's an occupying army. The occupying army is not in battle, but rather policing a conquered territory. The occupying army is just enforcing the victory that has already been won by our commander in chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why believers shouldn't magnify the battle. They should magnify the triumph that's already taken place. First, let's look at the use of war and warfare in the epistles, the New Testament letters written to the churches. We will find that real spiritual warfare is entirely different from what many people think it is. 
For example, as we study the New Testament, particularly the epistles of Romans through Revelations, it's amazing how seldom the words war and warfare are mentioned. Never once are the words devil or Satan used in connection with them. In the scripture example below, we will see a comparison or parallels made in reference to the military, but not in connection with the devil. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Another one is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. One area of wrong thinking as it pertains to spiritual warfare is in the area of believers trying to fight the devil and pull down strongholds over cities and nations. We need to look at that practice in light of God's word to see if it's scriptural or not. We need to know what the word of God says on any subject and think and believe and act in line with God's word. Then we will get Bible results. Amen? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, we see references made to war, fighting, and weapons. However, these verses are often taken out of context to say anything folks want them to say. For instance, this passage of scripture has been widely used to apply to battling demons over cities and countries. But it's clear by the context that Paul is talking about something different. Paul isn't referring to battling demonic forces over geographical areas. He is admonishing believers to take control of their own thoughts and imaginations so they can prevent the devil's lies from getting a stronghold in their minds. The devil can't get into a believer's life unless they open the door. An undisciplined mind and wrong thinking have as much to do with opening the door to the devil as wrong believing and wrong talking does. That's how believers allow the devil to build strongholds in their minds and lives. Believers need to know those are the major battlefields of life. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Now let's consider Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 through 10. This passage was written to Christians, not to unbelievers. Believers are going to reap what they sow, whether it is good or bad. Believers are sowing words and actions every day from which they will eventually reap a harvest, good or bad. Demonic activity is not necessarily even involved. This particularly applies to words since life and death are in the power of the tongue. So let's read that in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Holy Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Here's another passage where Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. How is that done? by holding on to faith and a good conscience. In other words, Paul was simply telling Timothy, stay in the fight of faith 
fulfill the call of God on your life, this is how you are going to war a good warfare in this life. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so shipwrecked their faith. In the epistle of James, the fights and battles he was addressing was among believers and the works of the flesh and had nothing to do with the devil. According to James, spiritual warfare has to do mostly with fighting the lusts of our own flesh that war against our lives in order to destroy our spiritual development and hinder our growth in Christ. So James chapter 4 verse 1, So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 speaks along the same lines. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We need to crucify our flesh today just as the Christians did back then in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. When we don't crucify the flesh and keep our bodies under, as stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, we can count on having trouble in life, and it's not necessarily demonically inspired. Paul also referred to the unregenerated flesh warring against the mind in Romans chapter 7, verse 23. In the Amplified, But I discern in my bodily members, in the sensitive appetites and wills of the flesh, a different law or rule of action, at war against the law of my mind or my reason, and making me a prisoner to the law of sin that dwells in my bodily organs, in the sensitive appetites and wills of the flesh. We have looked at scriptures in the epistles where their words, war, fight, weapons, and battle are used. The devil isn't mentioned one single time in any of these scriptures. Yet to hear some of these people talk, you would think spiritual warfare is the only subject in the Bible. Those who wage a good warfare keep their mind renewed and their flesh in check and know how to stand in faith on the promises in God's word. As a result, the believer will have no difficulty in enjoying great victory over the devil who is defeated, stripped of his power, paralyzed, and brought to naught, and reduced to nothing nearly 2,000 years ago by our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than always trying to stand against something, why don't we stand for something? The truth of the Word of God and Jesus' victory over Satan in his death, burial, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of the Father. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We need to stay on the offensive, preaching the word, not on the defensive, constantly trying to battle a defeated foe as if we have to defeat him again and regain the victory Jesus already won for us. So here's an interesting question. Do Christians wrestle with demons? Well, many people would say yes, based on Hollywood's rendition of spiritual warfare as seen in TV. But we can see that the epistles uses the words war and fight to describe the conflict between the flesh and the mind and between the flesh and the recreated spirit. Then what does the Bible have to say about wrestling? Does the New Testament teach that believers need to wrestle with demons? Let's look in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. 
Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in his power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand and withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, being girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all this, take the shield of faith with which you can extinguish and quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Wrestling denotes strenuous effort, doesn't it? According to the scriptures, we do wrestle, or as the NIV puts it, struggle against the devil. We do have the devil to deal with in this life. But read that verse in the context with the whole counsel of God's word, that Jesus defeated Satan for us and redeemed us from Satan's dominion. Well, what does the scriptural word for wrestling mean? War? No, certainly not. There's a vast difference between wrestling and warring. If you've ever been in a wrestling match, you know that there's a vast difference between wrestling and fighting a war. One of the meanings of the word wrestle in W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words is to sway. If we will let him, the enemy will come against us and try to sway us and get us out of faith and into doubt and unbelief about the word so he can defeat us. But if we stand our ground in faith, he cannot sway us from the word. Therefore, the wrestling we do is not fighting the devil, but it is a fight sometimes to hold fast to our faith in God's word in the midst of trials, tests, and temptations that try to knock us off balance, distract, and rattle our cage. In a desperate attempt to discourage, frustrate, and pressure us to give up and give in and quit. But our response is, having done all to stand, stand. So the word wrestling in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 is used figuratively, just as the word run is used figuratively in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The Bible doesn't use the word wrestle to tell believers to get into a heavy spiritual combat to wrestle against the devil in prayer. No, the Bible is trying to show believers that our position in this life comes from the spiritual realm and that we are not to fight against people, but we are to take our stand on God's word and enforce our victory against a defeated foe. Sadly, some Christians have taken wrestling and resorted to fleshly tactics, such as yelling and screaming at the devil to try to defeat him. The wrestling the believer does against the forces of evil is not done in the natural realm with fleshly tactics. It is done in the spiritual realm by faith in God's word. So how did the early church deal with spiritual warfare? I like mentioning Stephen because his outstanding qualities consisted of being full of the word of God in the spirit. To be full of God's grace and power is to do exploits. One has to be full of God's word and the Holy Spirit prayed up. So in Acts chapter 6 verse 3, Brothers, choose seven from among you, who you know to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs amongst the people. When Peter and John were released from jail and had been threatened by the religious leaders, What was the response in Acts chapter 4 verse 23? 
they ask God for more boldness to speak God's word. Spiritual warfare for the believers begins and ends with speaking God's word in prayer, ministry, deliverance, etc. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, we read, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. How about Paul and Silas when they were thrown into the Philippian jail for setting a slave girl free from demon possession? Clearly, the devil was the one stirring up those people against them. As I had mentioned already, Paul's thorn in his flesh was a messenger of Satan sent to follow him wherever he went in order to stir up persecution for him and make his way difficult. You can read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. However, Paul and Silas pulled out a potent spiritual weapon called praise and worship. They praised God until the power of the Holy Spirit came down. Praising and singing praises is a type of scriptural wrestling in the spiritual realm because we have to stay in faith to do it. God always responds to faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6. Acts chapter 16 25 states, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The greatest form of spiritual warfare is found in the believer offering his or her body unto God as a living sacrifice and renewing one's mind with the word of God. We see that stated in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This fight is simply based on standing firmly on the promises of God's word and on the finished work of our redemption in Jesus Christ. It is crucial to point out that we engage the enemy not in our own strength, but through the power of God. Folks will say, well, I'm trying to be strong, but the Bible does not say a thing about being strong in ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, the Amplified, For when I am weak in human strength, then I am truly strong, able, powerful, in divine strength. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, in the Amplified, In conclusion, be strong in the Lord, be empowered through your union with Him, draw your strength from Him, that strength which His boundless might provides. Many times in the circumstances we face in life, we can feel weak, empty, and helpless, in ourselves. But thank God, we can lean on the promises of God. We can go back to the rock, Jesus Christ, and stand fast on his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death, But this happened that we may not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. 
that many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in the answer to the prayers of many. Trusting in God is trusting in His Word. This is where many believers are missing it. They're trying to be strong in their own strength and don't realize all the strength they need is found through the Word of God. Let's now look at the armor of God. One way we become strong in the Lord is by putting on the whole armor of God according to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. We put on the full armor, not just part of it, for two reasons. Number one, we wear the armor of God for protection in our prayer life. Once we have the armor on, we are ready to pray. We are dressed for prayer. The object of putting on the armor is so we can enter into prayer. And number two, we wear the armor to help us stand in life against the tactics, trials, tests, and temptations of the devil. Now, if we need the armor of God to make us strong in the Lord, then we need to take a closer look at it. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The word put in the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible is in duo. It has the sense of sinking into a garment to invest with clothing, to array or clothe, to endue, have or put on something. So in reference to what the Bible is saying, we put on the armor of God in this fashion. The purpose for putting it on is to use it or to do something with it. So we go on reading in verse 13, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. As we have been saying, our stand is always on God's word. That is the foundation that will never be shaken or collapse. But it's not just hearing the word, but putting it into practice by speaking it out of our mouths and doing what it says. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus said, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So let's look at each of the pieces of the full armor of God. So the first one is the belt. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Represents a clear understanding of God's word. We present ourselves to God by correctly handling the word of God according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Like a soldier's belt, it holds the rest of the armor in place. We are not going to get anywhere in prayer unless the word of God abides in us, according to John chapter 15, verse 17. A successful prayer life must be based on the promises in God's word. The next piece of armor is the breastplate. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. The breastplate of righteousness in place. That refers to our right standing with God. When we accept Jesus, we become the righteousness of God in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. We would not be any match against the devil if we didn't have right standing with God. But it's not just having it, but knowing what it means for us in the new covenant as children and heirs of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Another piece of armor is having our feet fitted with readiness. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. To be effective in prayer, we must walk in the light of God's word. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, Psalms chapter 119, verse 130. 
It's hard to walk when the path before us is dark. However, the light of God's word, to guide us and to reveal truth, we never have to walk in darkness, under Satan's dominion, or be taken advantage of by his lies and deception. As soon as the light of God's words comes, faith is there. Feeding and meditating on God's word brings light and faith, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith in God's word is our major defense against Satan's onslaughts against our mind and our life. Next, we come to the shield of faith. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So in addition to all this, we must take up the shield of faith. The Bible puts such a great emphasis on the shield of faith because that's what we can use to extinguish all the enemy's fiery arrows that are launched against us. Using the shield of faith is a daily task of keeping the enemy from diverting our attention from prayer and seeking first the kingdom of God. At all costs, the enemy wants to keep us from staying in faith in God's word to shipwreck our faith, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. Then we have the helmet of salvation. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation, which is the knowledge of our position in God because of our salvation and redemption in Jesus. Directly related to the prayers Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 through 22. The helmet of salvation includes having our mind renewed in order that we may know who we are in Christ. The helmet protects our mind, Satan's chief battleground. And then we come to the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Every part of the armor of God is defensive in nature except for this one. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is the only part of the armor that we take and fight against Satan with. The word of God spoken out of our mouths becomes the sword of our spirit against the enemy. That is what Jesus used when he had defeated the devil's temptations. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 7. In truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. In Luke chapter 4, verse 3, the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. Always speak the word. That's the two-edged sword coming out of our mouth. So did you notice what the Bible said after the devil was soundly beaten during the temptation of Jesus in the desert in Luke chapter 4, verse 13? When the devil had finished all this tempting, He left him until an opportune time, thus illustrating the reality that the enemy is persistent. So we have to be more so in standing on and speaking the word of God out of our mouths. For one thing, Jesus never went looking for the devil to do spiritual combat with him. But when the devil came with his temptations to oppose Jesus, the Lord did not groan, scream, yell at the devil for hours, or try to pull down Satan's strongholds. Jesus was protected by truth and righteousness. So he simply stood his ground and used the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Used God's Word as a sword against the devil. So if Jesus wrestled with the devil using the Word, then that's how we should deal with the devil too. It is written. That's what we say. So having done all to stand on God's Word, we will win every time. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Because it is by faith you stand firm. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, 
Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men and women of courage, be strong, do everything in love. Now there's power in the blood of Jesus. What else does it mean to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power? In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, we can't be strong in the Lord without appropriating the saving power of his blood. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 in the Amplified, the Father has delivered and drawn us to himself out of the control and dominion of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have our redemption through his blood, which means the forgiveness of our sins. We have been redeemed, bought with a price, ransomed and delivered from the clutches of the enemy, only through the spilled blood of Jesus on Calvary. When we have a solid foundation of understanding concerning the power that is in the blood of Jesus, what an advantage we have to walk in spiritual victory in this life. When we sin, we understand that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we can confess those sins to God and the blood of Jesus is just as fresh to wash us from a guilty conscience. The accuser of the brethren has no basis of a case against us or legal right to oppress us with his curses due to God's broken law. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 in the Amplified, And they overcame, conquered him by the means of the blood of the Lamb and by the utterance of their testimony. You know, if a deadly snake was to bite you, just say, I plead the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ against this snake bite. When we understand the power in the blood of Jesus and stand on our covenant rights of protection, we will never experience any harm. In Mark chapter 16, verse 18, addresses protection against anything poisonous. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 tells us that God keeps us safe from the evil one who cannot harm us. I like what it says in Acts chapter 28, verse 3. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up and suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Instead of talking about how big and bad the devil is, let's magnify the victory we have in our blood covenant through Jesus Christ over all the works of the devil. Since Satan is a defeated foe, now it's up to us to take our stand against him in the faith, also in the grace the Lord Jesus Christ has provided us. There is the grace of God given through his word That we must stand upon. It's only our faith in God's word that will enable us to stand successfully against the devil. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now we need to be fervent in prayer. Another way the believer continues to be filled with the spirit so they can stand in the power of God's might is by being active in prayer. 
In James chapter 5, verse 16, it states, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man or woman of God is powerful and effective. I like what it says in James chapter 5, verse 16 in the Amplified. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous person makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Also in verse 18 in the Amplified of chapter 5, verse 18 of Ephesians, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but ever be filled and stimulated with the Holy Spirit. Or in the Greek, it says, be being filled with the Spirit. It's in the continual tense. The power of God is always available, but prayer brings that power into manifestation. Earnest, fervent prayer makes tremendous power available. It is also one way the believer gets filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit, the power of God to stand strong against the enemy. Once we have put on the full armor of God, we have become strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Then we are ready to pray. With the armor on, we are ready to make tremendous power available by the help of the Holy Spirit. That is when our prayers become powerful and effective. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 kind of closes the whole armor part out by saying, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Notice it says all kinds of prayers. There's not just one kind of praying. There's different kinds of prayers, different kinds of tools in our prayer toolbox. So how does prayer relate to spiritual warfare? True spiritual warfare first takes place in the believer's own mind and flesh, then through the prayer of faith. Many times the victory is won simply by standing our ground in the arena of prayer. Many times the reason we're not ready for battle we encounter in the natural realm in life is that we haven't entered into the prayer arena and the fight of faith, as we should in the spiritual realm. To say it another way, we're not prayed up and full of the Holy Spirit. When we are not prayed up, it's easy to be defeated when tested by the enemy. Notice that Paul makes mention of always keep on praying for all the saints. This speaks of a consistent prayer life, a lifestyle of prayer that never gives up, stops, or takes a break. This kind of prayer is not about trying to dethrone Satan or pull down strongholds over communities, cities, or states, or provinces, or nations. Paul is talking about a lifestyle of communion and fellowship with God so we can resist the tactics and deceptions of the enemy that try to discourage and defeat us. The Bible does not tell the believer to aggressively attack the devil or the devil's kingdom in prayer. Rather, the believer is to fervently reach out in prayer for other saints and for ministers and ministries who are reaching the lost. Another translation of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 says, Praying with all manner or all kinds of prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So just wrestling against the devil all the time in prayer could be scriptural because it's not praying with all manner or all kinds of prayer. If we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, He will lead us in prayer with all manner of prayer, not just one kind of prayer, because He will always lead us in line of what the Word of God says. Now concerning an interesting subject, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, warring in tongues. Some claim that there is an aspect of speaking with other tongues that is used in spiritual warfare against the devil. Supposedly, this is a tongue that only the devil knows, but there is no scripture to support this. Not one single time in tongues mentioned in the Bible in connection with the devil. In regards to the devotional speaking in tongues for the believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 2, states that no one understands him. 
which would include the devil. The person who is speaking in tongues is uttering mysteries with his or her spirit. And to what end? For edification, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 states, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. Now, there is a special manifestation of the spirit as he wills, in the forms of tongues and interpretation of tongues, in a group meeting, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 through 11. However, it always is a message given for the edification of the church. I'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5 for you. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation of, or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? In other words, one cannot announce to the people, what's everyone war against the devil into other tongues? If there is an unction that should come by the Holy Spirit in prayer, it's as the Holy Spirit leads for one thing, not as a person leads or directs, and it will always be in line with the Word of God. Inherently, warring in tongues places too much focus or attention on the devil rather than on Jesus. Ignoring the biblical use of tongues, this teaching strives to make speaking in tongues something that is done against the devil instead of unto God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14 through 19. Thank God for praying in other tongues. And let's not waste our time praying in tongues as a means of trying to defeat an already defeated foe. Instead, yield to the Holy Spirit and let Him use us as we pray in tongues to be a blessing to humanity. That is the most effective way to gain ground for God and do great damage to the devil's kingdom of darkness. Pulling Down Strongholds Evil spirits like to remain in the locality where they have established strongholds. The Bible gives us an example of this in Mark chapter 5. When Jesus delivered the madman of Gadara, the evil spirits that inhabited the man did want Jesus to send them out of the country. Those spirits didn't want to leave that locality. So they asked to go into a herd of swine instead, and Jesus gave them permission. In Mark chapter 5 verse 9, Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And they answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. At once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. There were about two thousand, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea, and were drowned in the sea. We can glean from this passage of scripture that demons do like to gang up in certain parts of the world or in certain countries. Let's take an account in the book of Daniel. When the archangel Gabriel came in response to Daniel's prayer in chapter 10, remember back in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, which lists the ranks of evil spirits within Satan's kingdom? The highest level, as some translations call them, are wicked spirits in high places. Talk about the earth's atmosphere. I believe these to be fallen angels that were in league with Satan in his original rebellion, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. It appears that Satan has appointed fallen angels as regional rulers over the nations of the earth. When the book of Daniel speaks of the prince of the Persian kingdom, and then the prince of Greece that had engaged the archangel Gabriel in combat, 
Obviously, we are not talking about human princes over these kingdoms. Even the archangel Michael was called upon to help. And notice that he was called the chief prince. We know that Michael is an angel and is called a prince. So if the spiritual entities of Greece and Persia are called princes, they most likely are angelic beings of the fallen variety, of course. So reading from Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, Then Gabriel continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there by the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns time yet to come. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I do, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And let's read over in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Now that's talking about the first heaven. And it goes on to say, Then the the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. When we read Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, and refers to the sons of God, it was talking about some fallen angels who had cohabitated with human women and produced evil giant offspring called the Nephilim, like Goliath. However, these fallen angels crossed a line with terrible consequences. You can read that in Jude, verse 6. When traveling, it can be easy to discern what kind of spirits are in a given locality. Actually, one can drive through a city and know what spirits predominate there. Not because of any of the spiritual gifts operating, but just by spiritual perception. This should be the case for every Christian. Sometimes there are predominantly immoral or occult spirits or spirits promoting foreign religions. Small towns, not just large cities, can have a spiritual stronghold or spirits ruling over them as well. The evil spirits that dominate a city will try to get into the local churches if there are people in the church who will yield to them and let them in. We can see this, for example, in Paul's letters written to the Corinthian believers. Corinth at that time was one of the most immoral cities of the East. The immoral spirit that had control of that city got into the church because someone in the church let it in through sin. There was a man in this spirit-filled church who was cohabitating with his father's wife. So Paul had to deal with it. Let's read about this account in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Notice in this passage that Paul only dealt with the man and his sin. He didn't deal with the ruling spirit in the church or in the city. This man had opened the door through sin. 
So Paul was dealing with the man in order to close the door back on the enemy. Paul goes on to say in the rest of the chapter that as believers, we are not even to associate or eat with a person who calls himself or brother and sister in Christ, but is immoral. The Bible calls yeast a type of sin. So Paul warns the whole church not to tolerate Christians who practice sin, but to judge them and put them out of fellowship if they refuse to repent. That's the important part, is when they are unrepentant. This kind of church discipline is necessary to protect other believers from being contaminated and fall into sin as well. The result would be a domino effect. Just read Revelations chapter 2 through 3 and see how Jesus out of love rebuked and disciplined those churches for putting up with sin. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 9 it states, Those whom I love, Jesus said, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 12, Paul goes on to say, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So the cure of getting sin out of the local church is not to attack the devil, but to get those people who are in error to repent or to leave. This may sound harsh, but it's Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29-32 also talks about this very thing. Unfortunately, some people are getting into a ditch with some of the things they are doing in, in the name of spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual warfare is biblical, but some well-meaning folks have pushed it to the extreme and turned others off from a legitimate and crucial element of the church today. Some of these dear misguided people believe they are actually pulling down entire strongholds over cities and nations through such excesses in prayer as warring in tongues, as we have mentioned already. Actually, we have no direct scriptural support for pulling down demonic strongholds over entire cities and nations, especially in the sense of warring tongues and yelling at the devil. So in what context does the Bible refer to pulling down strongholds? Is it in reference to demonic power over cities and nations? And according to the Bible, what is a stronghold? Let's read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Thankfully, Paul explains what a stronghold is. First of all, who is he talking to in the first place? It was to Christians, with strongholds, pretensions, vain imaginations, and wrong thoughts. There is no mention of cities or nations in these verses of the Bible. Folks have interjected these things where they do not belong, and have built an entire theology that is incorrect. Actually, in this passage, Paul is talking about a believer taking charge of his or her mind and their own thinking, getting rid of stinking thinking, that's all. Paul is addressing the issues of mental bondages, thoughts, reasonings, arguments in the mind of believers which are contrary to God and His Word. Clearly, the context here is not demons or unbelievers, but Christians. This passage of Scripture is made even clearer along these lines in the Amplified Translation. For though we walk, live in the flesh, we are not carrying on our warfare according to the flesh and using mere human weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not physical weapons of the flesh and blood, but they are mighty before God for the overthrow and destruction of strongholds. 
inasmuch as we refute arguments and theories and reasonings and every proud and lofty thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God, and we lead every thought and purpose away captive into the obedience of Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One. What the Holy Spirit through Paul is trying to convey to the church is that the biggest battle we will ever fight is in the area of the thought life and of the mind. This is where Satan, through the power of suggestion, tries to plant seeds or weeds to grow in our minds, to influence our behavior and ultimately open the door for him to have access to our lives. However, if we promptly remove those thoughts out of our minds by replacing them with God's word, nothing comes of it. So praise God. Simple, isn't it? This is how we fight the good fight of faith, by persistently standing on and speaking God's word continually out of our mouths and putting it into practice in every area of our lives. In this way, the devil has nothing to work with against us. And this is the essence of spiritual warfare for believers in his or her life. Clearly, the devil's strategy is to push people into the extremes in regards to spiritual warfare in order to sidetrack believers from fighting the true spiritual battle, which is taking every thought captive to the obedience of God's word. Satan knows that believers who stand in faith in God's word are dangerous to him because they can fulfill God's will in the earth for their lives. That's why Satan likes it when believers get off into error and excess by trying to fight demonic strongholds over cities and nations. He knows those strongholds can't be once and for all pulled down before the appointed time, before Adam's lease on this earth runs out, the second return of Jesus. Until that time, the devil and his hosts have a right to be here and dominate those who let them, according to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Let's read about the appointed time in Matthew 8, verse 28. When Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So the devil is laughing the whole time when believers are hollering at him in the flesh, trying to pull him down over cities. Believers who fight the devil on these terms are actually defeating themselves by having to continually rely on their own human efforts. They are either trying to pray down the victory that is already theirs, or they are trying to pray down ruling spirits that cannot be pulled down before the appointed time. Let's read more along these lines in Luke chapter 4, verse 5 in the Amplified. Then the devil took Jesus up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the habitable world in a moment of time, in the twinkling of an eye. And he said to him, To you I will give all this power and authority and their glory, all their magnificence, excellence, preeminence, dignity, and grace. For it has been turned over to me, and I can give it to whomever I will. Therefore, if you will do homage to and worship me just once, it shall all be yours. And Jesus replied to him, Get behind me, Satan. It is written, You shall do homage and worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Let's look at this passage in Second Corinthians and some other translations. So we can get a better understanding of what the Bible is talking about in regards to the word stronghold. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 in the Moffat's translation, The weapons of my warfare are not weapons of the flesh, but divinely strong to demolish fortresses. I demolish theories and any rampart thrown up to resist the knowledge of God. I take every project prisoner to make it obey Christ. 
In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 in the TNCNT translation, we are engaged in confronting arguments and pulling down every barrier raised against the knowledge of God. In the Phillips translation, our battle is to bring down every deceptive fantasy and every imposing defense that men erect against the true knowledge of God. We can readily see this passage is talking about taking thoughts, imaginations, arguments, theories, reasonings, deceptive fantasies, and bringing them into subjection to the true knowledge of God, the Word of God. Therefore, the greatest enemy of the church and the believer is false teachings that creep in to undermine the truth in an attempt to neutralize the church and rob her of God's grace and His promises. So let's look at a few passages of scriptures that speak along these lines. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said, I urge you that when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, If anyone teaches false doctrines, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, The Holy Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. In 2 Peter 2, verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth in a disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Jude verse 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and denied Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling." It's amazing when studying the epistles, uh, which is the books of Romans through Revelation, the letters to the churches, how much material is devoted to the subject of false teaching. This is the greatest threat to the church and explains the rise of all the false religions and modern cults in the world today, like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. 
These religious spirits push their doctrines of demons to hold people in bondage through deceptive lies and half-truths. One of the greatest challenges for me as a teacher is by God's grace is to straighten out wrong religious thinking that has denied believers of God's highest and best for their lives. There are countless Christians today who think it is God's will for them to suffer for things that was never God's will for their lives in the first place. Think of all those unfortunate souls who want to know God and to go to heaven, but are going to hell because they have embraced the lies of Jehovah Witnesses and Mormonism that deny Jesus as Lord and Savior. Consider the strong words of Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, for those who pervert the gospel of Christ eternally condemned. Is such a strong warning for the perpetrators and to us that he repeats it twice. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So let's read this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. The Lord Jesus counters this threat to his church by setting ministry gifts in place in order to keep the record straight. By preaching and teaching the truth, we will all grow up into Christ and mature spiritually, so we won't be taken in by this clear and present danger of false teachers. Let's read that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It was Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's look at the greatest act of spiritual warfare. The greatest act of spiritual warfare that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can afflict on the kingdom of darkness is in getting people saved and teaching and preaching of the word of God. It's the truth that sets people free. Getting folks to know and then act on God's word is the crux to spiritual warfare. Unfortunately, many believers are barking up the wrong spiritual tree in this matter. In Jude verse 22, it says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. John chapter 8 verse 31 To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In Acts chapter 19, verse 17, concerning the name of Jesus and the seven sons of Sceva, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, 
and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number of those who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I believe in spiritual warfare and in spiritual militancy in the sense of being aggressive and fervent in the word and in the Holy Spirit. Being aggressive to preach and teach God's word. Being aggressive and committed to preach the new birth, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, healing, and the believer's rights and privileges in Christ Jesus. Be aggressive to preach faith and prayer and to preach against devils and demons. Notice that the emphasis is on God's word and not on the devil. The goal here is to become God and word conscious instead of the devil and demon conscious. It's all about our focus. Please keep it on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. One of the outstanding reoccurrences in the earthly ministry of Jesus was that of his teaching ministry. Why do you think that is? Well, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And that was primarily done by teaching the word, which makes people free. Mark chapter 1, verse 21, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. In John chapter 8, verse 1, But when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Wherever Jesus went, he was constantly opening his mouth to teach and preach the word to the people. This, my friends, is the greatest act of spiritual warfare, and Satan hates it. Jesus even instructed his disciples to do the same. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in the towns of Galilee. After the resurrection of Jesus, the early church began to grow as a result of the ministry of God's word. Peter preached the gospel in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, and about 3,000 of them were saved. That was a real blow to the kingdom of darkness. For Satan, that translated in less people that he could control and dominate for his evil purposes. What really chafed the religious leaders of that day was when the apostles taught the people about Jesus. Knowledge is power. In Acts chapter 4, more people were getting saved and the knowledge of Jesus was spreading. So something had to be done. So let's read that. Acts chapter 4 verse 1. Then the priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In Acts chapter 4 verse 16. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Well, the apostle did not take the hint of stopping preaching about Jesus to the people. So next, the religious leaders put the apostles in jail to try to shut them up. But God sent an angel to set them free. Please take note of what the angel had told them to do in Acts chapter 5, verse 20. 
The angel said, go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, and they did as they had been told and began to teach the people. At all costs, the devil, through intimidation, threats, and persecution, is trying to shut the mouths of Christians. This is the one valuable asset of being baptized with the Holy Spirit, boldness to preach the word in the midst of adversity in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Another key to spiritual warfare is signs and wonders. When God manifests in supernatural ways to heal, deliver, and set people free, that brings glory to God and diminishes the power of darkness. However, Jesus only confirms his word with signs following. In Mark chapter 16 verse 20, then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by signs that accompanied it. In Acts chapter 5, verse 15, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Jesus in the early church was sent to teach and preach the gospel, not to focus on tearing down strongholds over cities and nations. If you read Mark chapter 16, verse 15 through 18, and Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, it was the preaching and teaching of the gospel that brought strongholds down in people's lives. If it were possible to tear them down over cities, Jesus would have taught people to do that, but he didn't. The Bible says that Jesus set the captives free from Satan's bondage by teaching the people what the word of God says and to walk in the light of the word. John chapter 8 verse 32. We need to do what Jesus did and what Paul told Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Preach deliverance by preaching the word. Notice Luke chapter 4 verse 18 doesn't say Jesus prayed for deliverance. It says he preached deliverance and then the people were delivered. People were delivered as the word of God set them free, as they believed it and personalized it in their life. In the scriptures that we do have, Jesus prayed his prayers to the Father. As recorded in Matthew chapter 11 verse 25, Luke chapter 23 verse 24, John chapter 11 verse 14, in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, in Luke chapter 4, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Nowhere in the Gospels or in the book of Acts do we see any references to pulling down strongholds over cities. What we do see is a whole lot of ministry of the word of God, wherever they went, and God confirmed his word with signs and wonders. We can overcome the enemy's strategies just as the early church did, not by focusing our attention on fighting a defeated foe or by trying to pull down demonic strongholds over cities, but by praying and releasing our authority in Jesus' name scripturally. 
We have authority to bind principalities and powers and their operations against us and others if they want it. And we can pray to God for people's hearts to be open to the gospel. Then we need to get out and preach the word. Tell people about their covenant rights in Christ so they can be set free. Besides, have you ever been to those countries where people have supposedly pulled down demonic strongholds over them? It's interesting to note that after they've pulled them down, they are still there. That's because it's only the Word of God that can change people and affects nations and brings people out from under Satan's dominion and bondage so they can learn to stand against him and enforce his defeat like the rest of us. Satan is a small g god of this world and will continue to be until his time is up. But in the meantime, he is not god over my life or my home, nor does he have to continue to be god over the lives of the lost if they would just come to Jesus. So the secret is more of Jesus through the word, which results in less of the enemy in folks' lives. Now here's another strange doctrine called tormenting the devil. As long as we're talking about tactics against the devil that don't work and are harmful to the body of Christ, there's another practice that's wreaked havoc in some churches today in these so-called deliverance schools. Really, they could be called schools of bondage because they teach people to be devil-conscious and to fear the devil. This is nothing new. One aspect of these schools is to instruct folks to yell at the devil for hours, claiming that they were tormenting the devil. In reality, all they were being was ignorant. It reminds me of the chaos and confusion that unbelievers found themselves in over spiritual things when Paul encountered persecution in Ephesus. Notice these folks hollered for hours too, all at the top of their lungs, I might add. In Acts chapter 19, verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Some of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Again, it's another ditch the enemy wants to get believers into in order to waste their time and make them ineffective. Some believers seem to think yelling at the devil shows their authority over him. But the devil doesn't have to bow to the loudness of a person's voice. He isn't afraid of noise. He invented rock music, right? What he is afraid of is the name of Jesus, which slaps him down and puts him in his place. He fears the believer who stands in his or her authority in Christ. The devil doesn't have to cease and desist in his operations against us based on how loud we can yell at him. But he does have to stop in every strategy against us when we exercise our authority in Jesus Christ. We just have to know our rights and privileges in Christ and enforce Jesus' victory over Satan with God's word. Where folks get off on this notion is found in Mark chapter 5 verse 7 and Luke chapter 8 verse 28. However, in Matthew chapter 8 verse 29, it says, What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Jesus could not torment these evil spirits yet, neither can we. Unless Adam's lease runs out, demons and evil spirits are here on the earth. But thank God the day is coming when they will be cast into their eternal abode and be tormented for all eternity, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. Now, praying scripturally, if believers were not to pull down strongholds in the sense of doing unscriptural things like warring in tongues in the heavenlies, 
then how can we pray so that our prayers will affect change in our cities and nations? First and foremost, the body of Christ needs to realize that it's only through the Word of God that grows and prevails in people's lives. The Word of God will grow and prevail over any circumstance, any demon, or any force of the devil in a person's life or in any nation if it is planted in the ground, prepared by prayer, and watered by the Word and the Holy Spirit. So producing a crop through the Word of God and prayer is the key. A great revivalist once said, It is no more supernatural for believers to have a revival than it is for farmers to reap a crop. He meant that the same principles for sowing and reaping a crop applied to both the natural and spiritual realms. A harvest doesn't just happen for no reason, or by accident, nor does it happen overnight. The Bible calls people who are ready to receive the gospel a spiritual harvest. So number one, the the farmer prepares the ground, then he plants the seed, The sun and rain and irrigation causes the crop to grow. Finally, the crop is reaped for a harvest. Spiritually, we prepare the ground of people's hearts through scriptural prayer and sowing the incorruptible seed of God's word. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. The word has to be sown in people's hearts through the preaching of the word because it is the word that brings light and illumination to people's hearts to set them free from the dominion of the devil. You can read that in Psalms chapter 119, verse 130. If believers only prayed in regard to the harvest, but no one ever sowed the word, there would be no harvest of souls. It doesn't matter how good the seed is or how well prepared the ground is. If there is no water or rain there, there will be no crop and no increase. In the Bible, water is a type of both the word and the Holy Spirit. Read that in John chapter 4, verse 10, chapter 7, verse 38. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26. The rain mentioned in James chapter 5 verse 7 in this verse is a type of the Holy Spirit and in Zechariah chapter 10 verse 1 states to ask the Lord to send the rain. Let's read these verses. James chapter 5 verse 7. Be patient then brothers until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 1. Ask the Lord for the rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and plants of the field to everyone. So the first rain is to prepare the ground for the seed of the word to be planted. We can pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all nations. Without a heart being softened, God's seed will fall on hard hearts, according to the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, verse 15. Then we need to sow the seed. But then someone will have to go and preach the gospel in order to get people set free, because it is the word that sets people free, according to John chapter 8, verse 32. That is the scriptural way to change nations, by praying according to God's word and by sowing the incorruptible seed of the word of God. Next comes the latter rain. It's scriptural to ask for the reign of the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon every nation to cause seeds of the word of God that have been planted in people's hearts to grow. We also need laborers. No matter how good the harvest is, if there are no laborers to reap the harvest, the precious fruit of the earth will not be gathered in. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So let's just keep asking the Lord for the reign of the Holy Spirit 
Keep preaching the word to people and keep praying for laborers to be sent forth. Then there will be a harvest of souls that will be brought into the kingdom of God. That's how to scripturally change cities and nations, because it's based solidly on God's word. God will bring the increase. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What after all is, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. So preparing the ground through prayer is crucial. Praying for revival affects change in cities and nations by pushing back the darkness that blinds people from understanding the gospel message and so be saved. The ministry of Charles Finney, the great revivalist, gives insight into how to prepare the way for revival through prayer that is based firmly on the word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 in the Amplified, For the God of this world has blinded the unbelievers' minds, that they should not discern the truth, preventing them from seeing the illuminating light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, the Messiah, who is the image and the likeness of God. Finney had revivals in city after city. Sometimes almost entire cities would get saved when he came and preached there. That's invading the kingdom of darkness. Most students of church history would agree that Finney had the greatest success at soul winning of anyone since the Apostle Paul. It's a historical fact that 80% of all Finney's converts remained faithful to God in their Christian walk. In most of the other revivals in history, not even 50% of the converts continued to live for the Lord. When asked the secret of his success in ministry, Finney simply said, The secret is prayer. I always get up at 4 o'clock every morning and I pray from 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning. I've had some experiences in prayer that indeed alarmed me. I found myself saying, Lord, you don't think we're not going to have a revival here, do you? Then I found myself quoting scripture after scripture to the Lord, reminding him of his promises. And that's based on Isaiah chapter 43, verse 26. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Finney pled his case with God for revival in the cities where he would be preaching, based on the promises in God's word. He simply put God in remembrance of what he had said in his word. He prayed according to the word for revival, for souls to come into the kingdom of God. There isn't one account given that Finney ever pulled down demonic strongholds, prayed against devils, or dealt with ruling princes over cities, yet whole towns were won to the Lord where Finney preached. Finney also talked about a man named Father Nash, who supported Finney's uh, ministry in prayer. Sometimes Father Nash would go ahead of Finney to the next city where Finney would be preaching to prepare the way in prayer for revival. Once when Finney came into a particular city and began his meetings, a woman came to him and said, About a week ago, Father Nash rented a room from me. After three days, I wondered why he didn't come out of his room. So I went up to his door and I could hear Father Nash groaning. I thought something was wrong with him. So I opened the door and peeked in. There he was, lying in the middle of the floor, groaning and praying. Finney answered, Don't worry about Father Nash, sister. Just leave him alone. He just has the burden of intercession to pray for lost souls. You see, Father Nash wasn't pulling down strongholds or fighting demons who were ruling over cities where Finney was going to be preaching. He was praying according to Romans chapter 8, verse 26, as the Holy Spirit helped him 
pray for lost souls with groaning that could not be uttered in articulate speech. This travail in intercession can be likened unto a woman having a baby, loud groans and cries. The key is to pray through until the burden of prayer lifts and is replaced with joy or a quiet peace. This kind of intercession in tongues, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 26, is as the Holy Spirit wills. We need to make ourselves available for the Holy Spirit of God to use us when the need arises. We need to realize that the Holy Spirit may lead a person to pray in private in ways that would be wrong in a public setting. For instance, many people, especially if unbelievers are present, wouldn't understand if a person suddenly got down on the floor at church and began groaning and carrying on in prayer in travail. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Thousands of souls were won in the kingdom of God through Finney's ministry. Finney accomplished that by praying for the souls, the precious fruit of the earth, and by preaching the word of God. Biblical prayer and intercession prayed by the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit affects change in cities and nations for the kingdom of God. When the burden of prayer comes from the Holy Spirit, if God's people would just be sensitive enough to yield to Him and enter into intercession and travail for the lost in their city, our nation would be absolutely transformed. We already know what God's will is on the matter. He wants everyone to come to repentance and receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. When we ask the Lord for our city and nations, we have to be willing to take possession of it. And the way we take possession of it is through intercessory prayer and travail for the lost. In Isaiah chapter 66 verse 8 speaks to us of the church entering into travail and bringing forth spiritual children out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. Psalms chapter 2 verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. And then in Isaiah 66 verse 8, Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day, or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. We can intercede on behalf of others with our understanding, as Finney did when he pled his case with God using the promises in God's word. However, there are times when we don't know how to pray for folks and we move into the area of deep intercession. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14 and Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Praying for the lost in that manner is part of the scriptural way to win a city for God. To win a city, we must win souls. Winning a city for God doesn't necessarily mean that every person in that town would be saved, because people still have a free choice. However, prayer and intercession makes it easier for people to yield to God and to desire to be saved, which translates in many people coming to the Lord. We can see that success in fulfilling the Great Commission in a combination of prayer and the Word. Now, neither are to be done to the exclusion of the other. Some may say, Why do we need to pray if all we need is the Word? I once read a statement by John Wesley that answers that question. Wesley said, It seems that God is limited by our prayer life. He can do nothing for humanity unless someone asks Him. In James chapter 4, verse 2, You do not have because you do not ask God. In John chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus said, In that day 
you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. God waits for his children to ask him to move on behalf of the lost. Asking based on God's word is the way believers stand in their place of authority in Christ and enforce Satan's defeat on the earth. So intercession is about standing in the gap on behalf of others. God can only move on this earth as his people ask him to move. God is longing today for someone to make up the hedge and stand in the gap before him and intercede for souls in every nation. That's a scriptural way to win cities and nations to God. In Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30, God said that he had to destroy the land because as a just God, he had to pronounce a penalty of sin according to Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 31, bringing down on their own heads all they have done. This scripture implies that if God could have found someone to stand in the gap and build up a wall and intercede for the land, no judgments would result. So let's read that in Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. Now here's a great example of Abraham interceding on behalf of his nephew Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. The men turned away, talk about these angels, and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing there before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find... Forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of the forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? The Lord answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, For the sake of the twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? And he answered, For the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. The same thing had happened with Abraham interceding on behalf of Sodom on account of his nephew Lot, who was living there. It was because of the covenant Abraham had with God that enabled him to be bold and question God's justice in condemning the righteous with the wicked. These verses say that if God's covenant children would just ask him to move on the earth, he would hear and answer their prayers. Satan is no match for Almighty God. The unsaved people of the world are dominated and ruled by the devil, not God. Therefore, they are destined to bringing down on their own heads all they have done, as stated in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 31. Unless, of course, they hear and receive the truth of the gospel and repent. God looks for those who will boldly ask him to hold back judgment 
and give the unsaved more time to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. These are the principles of God's word on which we are to build doctrines for prayer and for taking cities and nations for God. God watches over his word to perform it, not doctrines that are built on experiences or isolated texts taken to the extreme. You can read more about this in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11 and Mark chapter 16 verse 20. So praying for those in authority is another scriptural way to pray to win cities and nations for God is found in the book of Timothy. We are instructed to pray for those in authority. It stands to reason that if people in positions of authority in a nation can change to God's glory, then God has more liberty to move in that nation, so the devil's plans are thwarted and men and women are saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives and all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice that Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, that means we are to pray for men and women who are in positions of authority before we pray for ourselves or our own families. We pray for those in authority as a priority so that we can affect change in the nations of this world, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives and all godliness and holiness. Yes, there are ruling spirits over cities and nations that influence people who are in authority. Although we can't pull down those demonic strongholds once and for all, however, for as for the leaders of the nations, we can thwart and render inoperative the devil's strategies on the earth and cause God's purpose to prevail. However, praying for those in authority doesn't mean we are to pray that the politicians in our favorite political party will be voted into office. Please hear me out. We can't judge by political party alone which candidate is best to fill the leadership positions in our nation. It's not about personalities, but about praying for the right candidate to be elected in office. We may all have our opinion who is the right one for the office, but only God knows for sure. Therefore, we just need to pray that God will have his way in the matter. So the goal of praying for those in authority is so there will be peace in our nations. Then we can experience prosperity and liberty to preach the gospel undisturbed. As long as the devil has nations in an upheaval and embroiled in war, we can't lead a peaceful and quiet lives and preach the gospel unhindered to the ends of the earth. Jesus continually making intercession for us in Romans chapter 8 verse 34. Now let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. For not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So the most important reason God wants us to pray for the leaders of nations is so the gospel can be preached and people can be delivered out of the kingdom of darkness. God's plan and purpose is for the church to preach the gospel to every nation. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is a scriptural way we render the devil's work inoperative upon the earth. The devil has a problem with that phrase, then the end will come. That does not quite fit in his plans. He does not want the end to come. Because that is when he is finished. 
Therefore, world events are being influenced by Satan, throwing up every roadblock he can to prevent the gospel from being preached in all the world, according to Mark chapter 16, verse 15. In the times of turmoil and war, it's more difficult to spread the gospel. However, it's up to Christians whether or not the devil succeeds in his individual strategies against them. As we obey the Bible's instruction to pray for those in authority and for nations of the world, we can help thwart Satan's plans and instead fulfill God's purposes on the earth. It's really up to us. Christians have authority to pray in Jesus' name and change things in their country, no matter what country they live in. When we pray, we give God permission to move and rule in the situation instead of Satan, the small g God of this world, no matter what the situation is. When Christians stand in their place of delegated authority and we pray in Jesus' name, God brings many into his kingdom. We don't need to fight the devil to gain this authority. The authority has already been given to us in the name of Jesus, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. When we take our stand in prayer, we are simply exercising the authority Jesus has obtained for us already. We have the authority in Jesus' name to bind the power of the devil over the political scene of a nation. We have the right to demand that Satan take his hands off of the government and the economic and social scene of a nation. We bind every foul spirit that is affecting these areas and command them to stop in their maneuvers and cease and desist in their actions against us, according to Matthew chapter 18 verse 18 and John chapter 14 verse 13. Satan's strategies against us on earth can be stopped in every encounter, and God's purposes can be fulfilled. As Christians stand in their place of authority in Christ on behalf of the nations of the world by praying for those in authority, in this way God, not Satan, can have dominion in our city or nation. So let's look at limits to our authority. A person's authority in the natural realm and in the spiritual realm can only be exercised so far. For example, a believer has authority over the powers of darkness in his own home and for his own family. We see that in Acts chapter 16, verse 15 and verse 31, and Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. But when a believer gets beyond his or her own authority or jurisdiction as they pray for others, they will have to get their permission in order to exercise any spiritual authority on their behalf. That's the reason Jesus told us to pray in agreement in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, and get both parties to agree together on God's word. If we pray beyond our realm of authority for someone else, that person needs to be in agreement with us so our prayers can be effectual. We also need to understand the limitations of our authority over Satan's kingdom if we are to deal effectively with the devil. For instance, we have authority to break the power of the devil over people's lives in the name of Jesus, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, and make it easier for them to accept Christ Jesus but they still have a free choice and can choose to accept Jesus or reject him. By breaking the power of the devil over a person's life, that person is unhindered from Satan's influence so he or she can make a free choice for Jesus. In reference to the same authority, there are limitations to how the believer can exercise their authority in regard to demon activity. In other words, I can deal with the devil in my own life, but I can't necessarily deal with the devil in someone else's life unless that person gives me authority or permission to do so. They may want the devil in their life for some crazy reason. Every person has a right to choose who they will serve, and we won't be able to violate their free will. 
A person's will has a lot to do with their own deliverance. That's why we need to teach people their own responsibility in dealing with the devil, which is to stay full of the word and full of the Holy Spirit and learn to bind and stand against the devil for themselves. For example, when folks come to me for help, I can usually help them because by coming to me in the first place and asking me for help, they are giving me permission and authority to help them. As long as they are in control enough mentally to give me this authority, I can help them. Otherwise, I need a supernatural manifestation of the Spirit in operation to set them free. Smith Wigglesworth tells a story which helps illustrate the believer's realm of authority. Wigglesworth traveled by ship from the United States to England, and a stranger occupied the same cabin with him. It was a young man, and he was sick in bed. When Wigglesworth entered the cabin, the man was just skin and bones, and he told Wigglesworth, I'm going to England, my father has just died, and I've inherited his estate but I'll just drink it up. I'll lose it all in gambling and drinking. I've drunk so much that I can't eat anything. I have gotten ulcers of the stomach. Wigglesworth had never met this man before, but he said, just say the word and I can get you delivered. The man said, yes, I want to be delivered. So Wigglesworth laid hands on him and cast an evil spirit out of him, and the fellow was instantly healed. After that, the young man was totally set free and could eat every meal while he was on board that ship. There's a scriptural principle involved here. Wigglesworth said to him, just say the word. You see, even though Wigglesworth had the ability in Jesus' name to set the man free, he didn't have the authority to do anything for him until the young man gave him permission or authority to deal with the devil in his life. Until the man gave Wigglesworth permission, Wigglesworth couldn't help him. We can't make people accept Jesus or make anyone want to be delivered or to choose what God has for them because people have a free will. However, we can pray for them and bind the power of the devil over their lives, and that would give them an opportunity to make a choice unhindered by Satan's influence, but they still have to choose. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19 states, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life, that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a principle here that Christians need to realize about the limitations of our authority over the devil in other people's lives. You see, the mind is the door to the heart. If a person's mentality is such that you can communicate with them, and they give you permission you can deal with evil spirits in their life. But if the person doesn't give you permission, or if they want to keep the evil spirits, you won't be able to deal with the devil in their life. If a person's mind is not functioning properly, and they can't give you permission, then you can help that person only if the Lord gives you a supernatural operation of a gift of the spirit to deal with the evil spirit that's harassing them. Or if the person can sit under the teaching of the word for a period of time they can be set free also. Remember, we are pointing out the limits to our authority in the spiritual realm. You see, some believers make the mistake of taking one scripture, like Mark chapter 16, verse 17, which says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, and they try to cast the devil out of everyone they meet. The problem is, Jesus didn't do that when he walked upon this earth, neither did the apostles. Therefore, it couldn't be right for us to do it either. 
In fact, there's no pattern in the New Testament for trying to indiscriminately cast devils out of everyone we meet. Many times, well-meaning Christians see the authority they possess in Jesus' name, they get carried away in their excitement and start believing that they can cast the devil out of everyone. They think, I am someone, I do have power, I can work miracles, or I can work in the supernatural realm. No, they can't work the supernatural power of God on their own. No one can. The Holy Spirit is the wonder worker, not people. Furthermore, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit to lead us in wisdom according to the word in our dealings with the devil. The devil has no right to trespass on God's property, my life. But how much authority over the devil do we have when we are in Satan's territory, like going to a bar or a strip club? If we get over on the devil's territory out of disobedience or ignorantly or even out of curiosity, He's got a right to jump on us. If we are in his territory, we won't be able to keep the devil from attacking us. Now, believers have authority over the devil on their own property, and they have authority when they are preaching the gospel on the devil's territory by the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Pygria and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. For example, missionaries are always invading the devil's territory with the good news of the gospel, and they have authority over him in the name of Jesus. However, if believers go on the devil's territory because they are walking in disobedience and against the light of God's word, they give the devil a legal right to attack them. Yes, we have to deal with the devil, but remember we can't stop him from ruling as the small g god of this world but we can bind him in his operations against us and we can preach the truth to people and let them know that they don't have to be dominated by the devil anymore. Through biblical prayer and preaching of the word, we can help bring people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. That's how we scripturally turn a city or nation upside down for God. As it's stated in Acts chapter 17 verse 6 in the Amplified, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Is deliverance ministry scriptural? Despite the error that is being taught about deliverance and demonology, deliverance is scriptural. If we are a Christian, healing and deliverance belongs to us. We need to realize that the word deliverance doesn't just mean deliverance from demons. There is a much greater application of the word. Actually, freedom from anything that would try to bind us is part of our redemptive rights in Christ. For that reason, we should never allow anything from Satan to bring us into bondage. That redemption includes deliverance from any direct or indirect satanic bondage, spirit, soul, or body. So healing and deliverance is part of our covenant rights when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. You can read some more about this in Matthew chapter 8 verse 17, Luke chapter 10 verse 19, and 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. I like what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for the food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The greatest form of deliverance ministry 
is getting the word of God into folks so that faith will rise up in their own hearts and they learn to resist the devil for themselves. Because what gets us delivered keeps us delivered. People can be healed and delivered just by simply acting on the word of God for themselves. This method is God's highest and best. Although it's not possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon in their spirit, a believer can be oppressed in their mind or body by demons. But the real truth about the matter is, only a small percentage of believers will ever have a demon in their mind or their body. But most of the so-called deliverance ministries today claim that the majority, if not all Christians, have devils that routinely need to be cast out. That is nonsense. When it comes to ministering to folks, the only way we will know a demon is present is if the Holy Spirit reveals it to us and tells us to do something about it. Otherwise, we should just minister to people by simple faith in God's Word and by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Both of these ways are scriptural. You know, it's really sad that many of these so-called deliverance ministries today find themselves continually needing to minister deliverance to the same people over and over again. If that's the case, something's wrong. Why aren't people being taught how to resist the devil for themselves? The fact that folks have become dependent upon someone else for their deliverance really is not biblical. Notice in the Bible that when Jesus or one of the apostles dealt with a person who had demons, they spoke to the evil spirit and it left. They didn't spend hours and days or weeks trying to get the devil to come out of the person. When people spend hours trying to get rid of a demon in someone, it means they are trying to minister deliverance in the flesh. If deliverance is ministered by the Holy Spirit, under the power and unction and direction, results are forthcoming and the person doesn't need to have repeated deliverances. Many times, Christians try to do through prayer what only the Word of God can do. In John chapter 8, verse 31 in the Amplified, So Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, hold fast to my teachings, and live in accordance with them, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Continuing in God's word will bring a knowledge of the truth, and when this truth is acted upon, it will bring freedom. So let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 6. It's knowing and acting on the word that sets us free. In John 6, 63, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the word is anointed, And it's that anointing of the Holy Spirit on God's word that gets the job done. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27, the King James Version translation, And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. So when a person teaches or preaches the word, the word will deliver those who believe and act on the word they hear. The problem with prayer lines in most churches is they're trying to do through prayer and laying out of hands what only the word of God will do. We can have all kinds of deliverance meetings and prayer for people to be set free, even using the name of Jesus. We can have all kinds of physical manifestations, but they don't have any power. This oftentimes will bring temporary relief, but folks seem to slip right back into the same old bondage. What is the key for permanent results for people to walk in perpetual freedom? Only the Word of God. Thank God for prayer. It is important and has its place, and so does deliverance meetings. Folks have tried to do for the people what only the Word of God can do. I know I've said that, but it just bears repeating. Prayer can never take the place of the Word, just as breathing cannot take the place of eating. They are both important, but the Word is what feeds our spirit, not prayer. If we don't eat, then breathing will quit after a while and vice versa. Let's start teaching people the truth. 
and that is the only thing in the final analysis that will permanently deliver and set people free. God's word brings results. The seed is the word. Sow the seed, and the seed will produce it. Now, physical manifestations are not necessary in deliverance ministry. Another extreme deliverance teaching in our day is that the devil has to manifest himself in order to be cast out. Some people are always wanting to see manifestations. Some believers seem to be more interested in demonic manifestations than they are in the Holy Spirit manifestations. Some ministers teach it as doctrine that people must cough or vomit or have some other kind of physical manifestation in order to get rid of a demon. Honestly, this is not new, but runs in cycles because Satan is the same old deceiver as he always has been. Don't misunderstand me. There may be occasions when a demon will manifest itself when it leaves someone. For example, the Bible says a demon manifested itself as it came out of a child who had a dumb spirit. Read that in Mark chapter 9, verse 26. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. This is really important. In dealing with the devil, don't ever tell anyone to cough or vomit up a demon. Expelling a demon through coughing or vomiting may happen occasionally. If it does, fine. But don't ever tell anyone to put on some kind of a physical manifestation in order to get delivered of an evil spirit. Here's the problem. If we do tell people that some physical manifestation is to come forth, they'll try to put on a physical manifestation, and instead of getting rid of a demon, they'll open the door and get one instead. So this is where folks are missing it. Just because some kind of a physical manifestation occurs one time when a demon leaves somebody's body or mind, some people think, well, evidently, that's the way it's supposed to happen every time. Believers who go around seeing devils and other believers are creating havoc in the local church body. Some people who become so devil conscious because of extreme teaching in this area actually got an evil spirit when they didn't have one before. What about receiving words from the Lord? There's another extreme practice pertaining to deliverance in the body of Christ today. Some believers are always giving out personal words of prophecy, telling others what demons they have. I don't care who the person or minister claims to be. And if they say, thus saith the Lord, if what they say doesn't line up with the word of God and it does not bear witness with our own spirit, then just forget it. The devil tries to torment people and he can get away with it when believers are ignorant of their rights and privileges in Christ Jesus, and they aren't familiar with the whole counsel of God's word. Some believers who try to operate in spiritual gifts act like children playing with toys. Misguided people can misuse and abuse the operations of the gifts of the Spirit and just be talking out of their own minds. Or even worse, they can yield to familiar spirits. This hurts innocent people and allows the devil to take advantage of them. It's through erroneous teachings and practices like this that many people have become afraid of evil spirits and the devil, and it's really not necessary. If believers would receive solid scriptural teaching in this area, that wouldn't happen. Believers aren't to fear Satan because Jesus already defeated him on the cross of Calvary. The body of Christ isn't a defeated church, always running away from Satan in fear. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places and we are to exercise our position of authority in Jesus' name. We are the church triumphant. So in the final analysis, in studying the deliverance ministry of Jesus, we'll see that the Bible differentiates between healing the sick and casting out devils. In other words, Jesus didn't always cast out devils to get the sick healed. 
because not every sick person had demons in them causing the sickness. So what this means to us is that there are no ironclad rules. We'll have to follow the Holy Spirit in ministering to the sick and the oppressed, just as Jesus did. Study the Gospels for yourself and see how Jesus dealt with evil spirits. You'll find that at times Jesus dealt with the evil spirits in order to heal sickness and disease. Examples are in Luke chapter 13 verse 11. And at other times, Jesus merely healed the person using a variety of methods. Matthew chapter 8 verse 16, chapter 9 verse 22, and also verse 29. Jesus also used a various methods in dealing with demons and evil spirits. He didn't always cast them out. He dealt with them by other methods as well. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. In some cases of sickness, the sickness or disease is the result of natural causes. But indirectly, it's still satanic oppression. If sickness is the result of natural causes, the person needs to be healed. They don't need evil spirits cast out of them. On the other hand, sometimes an evil spirit is present enforcing a disease or infirmity. We will only know by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal the presence of an evil spirit, we can help people and get them healed by simply teaching them faith in God's word. However, I am thoroughly convinced that a number of different ailments can be dealt with only by dealing with evil spirits. And in those cases, unless the evil spirit is dealt with by the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit, we can anoint people with oil and lay hands on them until we've worn every hair off their heads. We still won't get results. Those kinds of sicknesses don't respond to the usual biblical methods of ministering healing. In those cases, the evil spirit has to be dealt with by the unction and leading of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason some cases of sickness don't respond to medical treatment. Sicknesses that are caused by an actual presence of an evil spirit can't be treated with natural remedies. Consider the woman oppressed by the spirit of infirmity in Luke chapter 13, verse 11. Oftentimes, the problem is found in a classic case of empty hands being laid on empty heads. Folks trying to minister in the flesh and not the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was the word that Jesus taught and the anointing that brought deliverance to those who were afflicted by demons. Likewise, today, we will also have to minister deliverance by the word of God and the anointing, the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20 states, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Luke chapter 6, verse 17, Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said by the Holy Spirit, For my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. It was the anointing of the word that set people free. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, and it is by faith that we receive the promises of God, including deliverance from any kind of bondage. Faith in the word of God is the key that opens heaven and activates the power of God to work in a person's life no matter what kind of demonic activity or influence is involved. When Jesus taught the people the word of God, preached deliverance to the captives, and the people believed the word, they were healed and delivered. 
In Luke chapter 6, verse 17, not one evil spirit was cast out of anyone. As far as we know, not one evil spirit was even discerned. Yet those who were troubled by evil spirits heard what Jesus taught and they were delivered. Well, it delivered them. It was the word that Jesus taught and the power of the Holy Spirit. The same results are available today for those who will act on the anointed word of God in faith. Note, we don't have to pray long for something that has already been promised in God's word. You see, when it comes to healing, it is already a forever settled fact that by his bruisings and stripes, we were healed. Therefore, it becomes a matter of receiving healing rather than trying to get God to send healing to us. Here's where a lot of folks miss it. When they don't make their connection in prayer, they don't stop to listen to the Spirit of God and find out why they haven't received. They just go on without checking with God. We need to inquire of the Lord and ask for wisdom as to where we're missing it. Then we need to let the Holy Spirit correct us if we need correction. This takes humility to admit that maybe we have missed it in an area of prayer and faith. So let's back up and correct our mistakes. God's word always works when we follow it according to directions. If the Holy Spirit leads us to do something that does not make sense to our mind, remember that Jesus spit in the dirt to make mud in order to heal the blind man in John chapter 9, verse 7. Well, in the natural, what good would mud do to heal that man? But we see it's faith and obedience that counts with God. It's just best to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and do what He tells us to do. That always brings results. The Holy Spirit will always lead us in line with God's Word, and what He tells us to do will always work. Many times we can lay hands on folks, and it's like getting hold of a live wire. We know they are in faith and are believing God. But we can lay hands on other people, and it's like laying hands on a doorknob. Somehow or another, the power of God is short-circuited, because God is always willing to heal just as he's always willing to save people from their sins without exceptions. Mark chapter 6, verse 4. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Whether we're ministering deliverance, praying for the sick, are just taking a stand against the devil in our own life, please keep in mind that Satan is a defeated foe. If you are a believer, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places now. Jesus' victory over the devil is your victory because you are in him. So ministering deliverance is scriptural, but we can't go beyond the word and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That is how people have gotten into error and excess in deliverance ministry and have caused much harm to the body of Christ. Let's just stick with the word and follow Jesus' example of ministering deliverance to the sick and the oppressed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Well, this is the last episode on the subject of the authority of the believer. I trust that it was a blessing and has enriched your life greatly. I encourage you to go back and meditate on the numerous scriptures that were presented throughout this season. The key is to have faith in the name of Jesus, which comes by feeding our spirit on these biblical truths until they become real in our hearts. That takes time and effort, to study the Word of God and personalize it in our own lives. But that's what brings results. God bless.
I highly encourage you to continue listening to the Word of Life Study Series podcast and encourage your friends to tune in as well. The scriptures encourage us in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 to receive the message with great eagerness and to examine the scriptures every day in order to confirm the truth that you're hearing. God's word is our final authority for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. I'd like to close this episode by praying over you according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And in chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Be blessed and see you soon.